Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Welcome back to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. My name is Tony Sager. I'll be your host today, and I'm joined by a special guest, Julie Morris of the Persona team. Hello, Julie. Hello, Tony. Thrilled to get to be here with you. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, a little bit of a change of pace for our audience today, but our topic is about thought leadership, and particularly the We'll also um, we'll look at the topic in general. We'll talk about uh, what we th- what we've been thinking about at the Center for Internet Security in terms of our use management and uh, strategies around thought leadership. And it's a relatively new topic for us to think of as part of the formal leadership agenda. So uh, it'll be learning for uh, I hope the audience and certainly for us. So Julie, uh, welcome, and to tell us a little bit about your background and the current work that you do. Tony, I like to say that my whole job comes down to dragging the genius out of the brains of very smart people. And um, so I get to do that in the form of a thought leadership agency. I get to do that one-on-one with people that are, you know, would be considered leaders internationally all the way down to, hey, I just graduated college and I've heard I need a personal brand. So let's work ahead. And so that the, the work is a joy. Um, it started when I realized that often marketing doesn't work like we want it to. And so I was sitting in front of a nonprofit leader here in Dallas one day and realizing that if I could just get him to stop moving for a minute, but you know, in nonprofit land and any kind of social good organization and really most companies who are we kidding, you have like 10 jobs as a CEO and to get someone to stop and to just share just simply share about their work. Tell grant makers, tell funders, tell people why to support them. Talk about the work that they're doing, the interventions they're coming up with. It would shorten the journey for other nonprofit leaders across the, the well, who are we kidding, across the country. But also it would bring about every other fundraising um, influence agenda that they had. But he was completely freaked out by the idea of thought leadership. Am I putting myself in a spotlight? Am I not doing the work that I really should be doing? So I realized as I drove away that day from that meeting, like, this is my life's work. I have to get people like this to do it. Wow. You know, that's interesting. And I think, you know, so I grew up, I'm, an, I'm a, of a different generation than you, Julie, a little, a little older, uh, and, and grew up in the techie world, right? And also in government service. So there's a bit of a trifecta there. And the, the kind of notion was, hey, the good work will speak for itself, Right. And this marketing stuff, this personal branding is like, uh, you know, but, the, you know, the work will will carry. But that's not really what's happening today. Right. There's a notion of professionalism here and the stories don't tell themselves or they're competing with an infinite number of stories. So tell me about like misconceptions and that people have of the work that you do. Is that one of them? It really is. Um, when we think about this huge shift. Right. Now we want you to be out in front. We want you to be vulnerable. We want you to be transparent. We want you to share what you're thinking and feeling as a leader. That goes almost completely flipped from the curated, perfect 
perspective uh, or the curated and perfect persona that we used to say has to go out there as PR, right? And so, so much has changed in this space. So much has changed. And it, of course, it's the advent of digital world that we live in, right? In social media, we do expect to hear from the leaders quickly. We do expect that you're going to be real and you're not going to feed us a line, but you're actually going to talk to us like we're people. And now because we have choice in almost every market we come up with, you know, everything from my air conditioning repairman, I want to know what you think. I want to know why I should give you my money, my attention. And we take that all the way up to policy. We take it all the way up to like this work in cybersecurity. But there's there's a lot of reversal right now that's happening. So we're all trying to figure out what the heck am I supposed to do? Much less, what do I want to do? Do I even want to do this? Do I even want to be out there talking to people all the time? Is that my job? So there's a lot of misconceptions around this space. And I hadn't thought of it from that from that opposite direction, Julie. That's very insightful. You know, that is, you think of sort of marketing as I'm selling myself, but this sort of, you, you flip the upside of consumers can be active now, right? They're expecting more information than they ever did before, or they have the ability to to um, look the, look at the market more broadly than they ever could before. And so you really are in a different space than we were. Well, we are. Okay. So Tony, you bring up this really good point of what are we supposed to do and what does the consumer expect? But you also have to take into account this huge vacuum because people expect to be spoken to and quickly. And as things emerge and as things shift, they want updates, they want answers. And so then we have a vacuum. And if that vacuum isn't filled by the good guys' voices, just as much as it is the loud, profit-driven voices, then we have a problem. Yeah, I think that is, that is right. I used to use the saying, and it's not original to me, but you know, in, uh, every vacuum gets filled, right? <laughs> every information vacuum gets filled, uh, including by nonsense. And so that's part of the story is how do you think of that as, a, again, you're competing for attention with... You know, not just peers, but completely opposite their competitors or just nonsense or disinformation. So just a quick, you know, I've shared in other places. My, my, uh, so by, by nature, I'm the family's introvert. And my shift into public speaking starting in maybe 2000, 2001 at the National Security Agency. And you, go, you don't have a career at NSA because you think you're going to be a public speaker. That's, that's not what happens. But there it was. And I inadvertently headed down that path. But I, I think I came to a realization that's similar to what you said, right? that um, I, I stopped thinking of public speaking as sort of like me out there, uh, you know, sort of putting myself on the line. It became, how do I advance the cause? It became, you know, disassociated from my value as a human being. That's what scares a lot of introverts, right? Oh, I'm going to fail. I can't do that. I can't, I can't make myself vulnerable in that way because people might not respond. But once I learned to think of it as this is an essential part to telling the story, to enlisting allies to a cause, then it became, oh, I could do that. You know, and I could, it's not a matter of do I have the natural skill? It's, it's a professional discipline. So how do I get better at it? How do I find, you know, professionals to learn from and sources to help me get, get down that road? So that was a big awakening for me. Yeah. So Tony, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but that I was completely unable to and terrified of public speaking personally until just about three years ago. I mean, I was teaching public speakers how to speak, but I didn't think that I could. I had, you know, almost 40 years of proof 
that I was terrible at public speaking and I shouldn't be public speaking and that it would be a very bad thing to do. It would be a disservice, actually. And so over the pandemic, I pushed really hard to be able to speak. I started with um, back when Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces was new and we started to have these chances to just virtually join, no camera, just audio. And I did it. And I, I, I just still kind of look back and go, wow, like I, if you would have told me, hey, you're going to one day not only be able to do this hard thing that seems like no one could possibly learn, but that you're going to love it. And the reason that I did it, one of the things that pushed me is because I needed to know what could go wrong. I needed to know where my clients were going to fail because sometimes you can have the perfect plan, but you still are going to have that plan fall apart in the moment. I needed to see it. But then also I had to carry the torch for my own ideas. If I believed that thought leadership was so important, I had to be out there as the face of that message, carrying the torch for it because we associate messages with people. And like CIS, for example, you have a torch to carry as an organization. And then even the people within it are going to have their own kind of unique torch, right? It might look a little different from someone else at the organization, but everyone cares about stuff. So how do we take that care and actually do something about it? Yeah. And your so your shift was similar, right? To, so thinking of public speaking, again, not as a, a thing that I've proven I'm bad at, but it's a it's a tool to to execute thought leadership, which is a way to execute the ideas that you have. And again, that's that little bit of, again, for me, it worked, a little bit of dissociation both made it um, acceptable to me to do, but then to see it as something then, if I want to achieve this, how do I get better at it? And, you know, so the, so bringing, and that's, that's one of the things that brought us together is, so I, and I, I got to see you first in your work with other cybersecurity nonprofits. And as you know, there's an uncountable number of great human beings out there trying to do good things in cybersecurity, but, but this was new for you, right? At some point that you didn't really grow up as a, as a tech geek. So any, any first impression, yeah. <laughs> any first impressions of, uh, about the sort of the world of technology vis-a-vis -vis the work that you do yeah. and maybe cybersecurity as a, as a component at rest. Absolutely. I fell into that work because so a lot of my background is working in philanthropy. Um, and so hearing about, all the ways that nonprofits, hospitals, that, you know, between food pantries and all the way across humanitarian organizations, realizing that so many more stories were coming out that they were getting attacked, cyber attacks, like with different scams and hacks, and they were shutting down the good guys. And that kind of blew me away. And I thought, well, why aren't we talking about this? Unfortunately, I got to start working with a few organizations, and then that that real challenge comes up of, wow, we're not using words that people understand. So how in the world are we ever going to raise the flag for these challenges that are totally coming our way? It's getting worse by the day. And this was long before like AI was on the scene and things really started to accelerate with how, how tough of an environment it was. And this was only even the parts that I knew. I'm a total layman in this space. I love technology. I think it's fantastic and I love being a part of it. But cybersecurity, it just blew me away how big the problem was and that there was such a gap between the end user and the human beings that kept causing all the problems and the technologists. And that gap, I knew I could ask the questions and try to help fill in some of those pieces and bridge between. But I also would love to see the cybersecurity industry just understand that half the battle 
is making it relevant to the end user. Yeah, I think that's fair. and I think that's a good observation, Julia. That, that you know, I, I appreciate it kind of fresh voice looking. Look, for, for, pardon me. I appreciate your fresh fresh voice taking a look at this problem for us. And so I often describe cybersecurity and you know the model I grew up in, right over four and a half decades now, the wizardry model. You know, this is the realm of wizards, people who speak a different language, who are kind of dealing with these complicated topics in technology. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the bad guys are magic and they're 10 feet tall. And how could I possibly protect myself against nation states and all these things? And so it's, it's easy for normal people to just give up. It's too hard. I can't make any sense of it. And that is, um, uh, you know, wizardry is great job security for people of my generation, but it's terrible public policy, right? Nothing gets done in improvement. And we don't manage risk in any other domain, you know, public health, transportation, safety, right? We, we find ways to manage risk without asking everyone to become an expert in building codes, for example. So this idea of the gap that you saw, that, you know, your perception there, I think is a fair one. And is, you know, it's part of why, um, you know, we, we've uh, framed the work of CIS in that way. How do we make security accessible, more built into what people do? You know, the, the, the name of our podcast, where you are. I mean, that's our goal is to help people see this. That, you know, we're not going to build a nation full of cyber experts. We, we want people to have businesses, right? Provide services and live happy lives and all that kind of stuff. So so we brought you in, uh, Julie, to work with CIS and uh, and appreciate the, the partnership here. But one of the things you did was uh, interview a number of our stakeholders around this topic of thought leadership and with the challenges and opportunities. So uh, any any impressions or any any uh, conclusions that you care to share with us about that? Well, what I can tell you is that I was blown away by a couple of things. Number one was how much promise that there was because we had so many cool people in so many diverse areas that cared so deeply, but also they were tired like, you know, from the top down, the if you even think for a minute about how big and scary this battle is and about how hopeless it can feel sometimes, I, I was a little bit nervous to think like, gosh, I hope we don't all get tired at the same time. Like, because then, then we're screwed, right? But um, with along with the, okay, the problems are so big, they're so big and they're getting worse by the day. They're all out guns, out mans. It's like the Hamilton song here. But there's still this fire and this passion. Like get them going for just a second and you can see their eyes light up. And like just if we could just all lock arms around these objectives to go and bridge these gaps between where our leadership is to where the human beings are, we could accomplish so much. But like, my gosh, let's let's figure out how to sustain. I was surprised and delighted to get to know so many people who were doing this when they could be doing, you know, between very lucrative work or very self-serving work. Like they resisted in a lot of respects to staying kind of in the heat of battle. But I'm kind of, I'm blown away by how many genius minds that you have hanging out with you, Tony, and who care about like CIS and your mission so deeply um, they all saw CIS in this extraordinarily unique seat between the where you sit and how respected CIS is. And so that was a delight to hear that there's nothing but potential and upside to continuing to increase your influence. 
Yeah, I think your observation, you know, what's one of the things that keeps me going. So I'm going to mention, uh, you know, 46 years and counting is this, this business is full of amazing people, talented people, number one, right? It draws that kind of talented person, uh, sometimes a little opinionated, but certainly talented. But this passion, you know, this sort of belief in the, in the goodness of technology, right? It's ability to serve mankind is, is built into it and the willingness to give their time to be generous, right, with their attention, with their hours, let people, you know, to allow people from your company to spend time on these sort of community causes and open standards and open source software is just all over the place and wonderful. It's great to work with it. But the challenge, as you said, right, is how do you harness it in a direction? How do you pull folks together? And I think that is, you know, that's one of the, 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 the things that a CIS can do and others. I mean, there's lots of great friends in this industry that are uh, of similar mind, but um, it's not a lack of talent, right? It's not a lack of goodwill. It's not a lack of willingness to donate, give, share. Uh, it's a matter of harnessing it. I used to say about CIS, someone asked me, and I said, well, you know, we work on this volunteer model, right? Lots of volunteers. I said, but, you know, volunteer labor, free labor works best when you have a professional a, a, a means to professionalize it. And that's really what CIS does, where we pull people together, provide a, a specific topic, a roadmap, support, publication, deal with the vendors, all that. That's what allows things to go on over time. And as you said, there's no solution, right? There's no end. We haven't solved crime. We have not solved, you know, health. We've got, we have, we learn to manage them as citizens, right? So we can live full lives but we, we haven't gotten to that point yet in cybersecurity. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of competing opinions and wizardry and, and the, the noise of the marketplace is just overwhelming to people, right? How do they choose? That's a big part of it. And so uh, you know, providing a neutral way to do that. Any other thoughts about, about CIS? I, I, we've talked about these things uh, in other places, but um, so, so you lay out big opportunities here, right? And big challenges and, I think that's that's a great part of this. Well, Tony, I think like on that point. So you, I think every organization who has someone who has been the heart and soul of the organization. And so anyone who's listening to this podcast knows Tony Sager. And we know when there is someone who has been kind of like the DNA to some degree. Um, and fortunately, there's a lot of people inside, in CIS with incredible genius, incredible care for the work. And that is so important. But when you have a chief evangelist like you, we have to now do this additional duty, I believe, right alongside thought leadership. And that is some real clear, thoughtful documentation about what matters and about, you know, once each of us goes, what do we want to make sure that we've left behind? That is the the soul and the guts. Because CIS is like every other modern organization to some degree. We don't sell widgets. CIS isn't just benchmarks. It's it's people who care. And so um, as we grow and as we try to lay hold of what is before us organizationally, missionally, strategically, uh, making sure that we weave in like the heart and soul of Tony Sager in such a way that it can be kept. That's really important. Well, you're very kind, but but in some ways, I carried the torch for our founders, who were dear friends of mine. By the way, you know the, the late Alan Paller and people, great people like Frank 
uh, Frank Reeder, Ramon Barking, and you know, all kinds of amazing people, and some of whom are no longer with us. And um, you know that that is part of the story of a CIS, right? Part of the legacy that to remind ourselves of what did our founders intend, and how does that translate into the into the things that we do today? How do we honor that and not get wrapped up in the you know where we are right now as a company? And that is a, an important part of it. Someone once uh, I was at a leadership offsite uh, one time, Julie, and the, we had a consultant come in and it was, it was a, there was an exercise of, you know, describe what you do. What do you, what value do you bring to the company? And the first couple of people said, uh, you know, I, I'm the vice president of something or other. It, yeah, but what do you do? And it, so it kind of opened up a healthy dialogue and I walked out afterwards. And I said, what do I do? What does an evangelist do? I'd never really thought about it too hard. And uh, I, I wrote a little paragraph on it, but basically it was, I tell our story. I tell our story to ourselves, right? To remind ourselves of why we are here, what we're trying to do. And sometimes the stories are true (laughs) and sometimes they're aspirational, right? Sometimes they're about aiming a little higher, reminding us of the North Star that we're aiming aiming for. And then I tell our story to the world, right? To to bring allies, to convince, to, to reshape the world that we're in. And I think that's a, you know, once I sort of put it down in one place, then it sort of crystallized the job, right? How do we do something with this? And so it's not a, you know, the, I re, actually originally resisted that title, chief evangelist. I thought of it as like the, not, please forgive me here, the chief salesperson, you know, the kind of cheerleader, uh, you know, and I, but, but, I, but I still work for a living as near as I can tell. And that, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to dismiss anyone else's job description or their role, but that's kind of the way it came across, right? And good, good, will, good work will sell itself. So let me come back to the, the role that we've, so, so what we've done here at CIS over the last year is give a lot of thought to this notion of thought leadership, right, as a strategic imperative. And we could easily say that before we started thinking about it that way, and this came from a challenge from our board, you would have said, oh, yes, we're doing lots of stuff in thought leadership. You know, we're publishing this and we're speaking here and we're doing that. But now I can, now as I look back on it, you know, through the through really giving it attention and to reaching out to real professionals, thought, hmm, you know what, what we're doing was pretty much opportunistic. You know, it was all good, but did it add up to something that was really executing our good intention? Well, frankly, it was more opportunistic than planned. And so bringing that together, you know, was part of the reason I reached out to you to see, let's, you know, again, if you want professional work, you find professionals. So, uh, so you came in, right? And we're, you know, again, we, we, we opened the door to, to kind of, here's the things that we do, the countable things that we know about. And a lot of these we did not have in place even just a, f- a few years ago. And so you've tried to help us make sense of that. So tell me a, a little bit about how, you know, how does one take all this goodness and try to uh, organize it in a way that really is uh, deserving and worthy of the time and attention of the senior leadership team? So that's such a big question. And I know with our time, I can't go into full seminar mode here. But what I can tell you is that any good, like quote unquote, good thought leadership program, but any effective thought leadership program is not going to be even about deliverables. It's not going to be about just one thing. It's got to be so multifaceted. It's got to take into account your partnerships, right? Any good thought leadership program is going to be part of an ecosystem where it's you working internally, it's you working externally, it's you making sure that people know how to be a mouthpiece for your organization. 
your employees, your senior team, um, partners that you're loosely connected to, but they could be influential for you. You want to turn every one of those people into thoughtful and um, equipped mouthpieces to bring the work, to bring the things that need change to the forefront and to do so consistently and thoughtfully um, to make sure that when times get tough, that they know who to go to. Um, like, what is CIS really doing? What are we supposed to do with CIS and next to and alongside? And when do we call them on them and when do we not? Because we know that they're good at this thing, but not maybe this thing. So we're supposed to almost delegate the work of thought leadership just as much as we are to strategize and to figure out what that foundation is. And then it's to send. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, it's so we, we've gone from one extreme. Well, we have sort of one extreme of um, things are opportunistic, right? Lots of people are doing good things. We now move it to the corporate table to say we should manage this. But at the end of the day, execution happens all across, right? So we don't want to have people say, okay, now the boss is taking care of thought leadership. I'll go back to the real work. But it's got to be part of the story, right? Part of the work. And I think that is... Uh, you know, part of this also, uh, we, we haven't talked about this before. You know, we, as a company, when, you know, we come from sort of technology roots. So we've been focused on, uh, you know, the, the, the current phrase that pays in the industry is agile methodology, which comes out of software development. And, you know, there's a lot in common here around the, the, the pushing of decision-making, you know, a downward in an organization, the alignment of sort of everyone against uh, common goals and so forth. And I think that, that resonates as, you know, it, I could see thought leadership as a as a strategy or a tactic for executing these things, right? How do we, if you want to push this decision making, say downward in an organization, you don't just push it down. You have to push information down that lets people know what the intention is of the corporation, right? What is What are we trying to achieve? They have to have some sense of that so that they can make decisions that are in concert with that. And I think that's something that I've really pushed on internally here to make sure that we don't forget that, right? It's not, it's not just delegating. It's also providing a structure within which people will make decisions that are consistent. There are no perfect decisions, but decisions are consistent with sort of corporate intention almost all the time. And I think that's, that's aligned with what you're saying. So that says then we have to be pretty crisp about what is it we're about, right? The more clear we are, and this is the alignment with strategy and, and thought leadership. We have to be able to, if you can't articulate what you want, then there's no way to drive the thought leadership to help you execute that. So very true, Tony. So very true. And I think when we're imagining like what it looks like when it's in action, um, I would say at the most, you know, on, all, on every cylinder potential kind of manner, right? If thought leadership is going in every way that it possibly could, it's benefiting people in so many ways that are so unique. So whether it's senior team all the way down to your new your newest workers at CIS or for any organization, right? But we're using CIS here. We have to recognize, and like CIS does, you care about people. You care about the people that work for you. You're doing very intentional work to be a good employer. And um, when you start a thought leadership program, you're you're helping people see that they have a responsibility to go and be, again, that voice, that mouthpiece for the organization, for your objectives, for your mission. But you're also helping them to do a very important skill, and that is figure out how to use their voice. Their voice is such an asset and we don't ever get training. <laughs> I know, I don't know about you, but in college and high school, and I had to find 
those those opportunities to learn how to use my voice. But in today's day and age, it's a given, right? Like our kids, <laughs> this next generation, it feels like they were born with a selfie stick and the ability to construct a post and any platform in any minute and know what good looks like. And we're all sitting back here going, hang on a minute. How, how'd you just do that thing on that social channel? Um, how do I say this without boring people? We're all catching up. Right. And so that, that is still though, it doesn't matter your age, your title, your role, you are a thought leader in your space. And I think that that conceptually is so important for people to see until we can activate around that vision that every single one of us has something to contribute, something to say, because we don't know what thought leadership really is. And so I have a definition of thought leadership that can be helpful. Your thought leadership, it is a beautiful kind of combination of your lived experience, your expertise, what you love, what you hate or get angry at what gets you out of bed every day, what you like to listen to on podcasts or media, um, what books you read, what hobbies you have, what you see right now when you look out your window. All of those things together make your voice unlike anyone else's voice that has ever been or ever will be. And how then do we figure out what we care about and then how do we work within our organization to influence internally as well as externally But if you don't know how to use your voice, how do you then action on anything you want to accomplish internally too? I mean, influence is so important to learn. But really, for everyone I work with, everyone I speak with about thought leadership, with the exception of a few who have been around long enough to know their weaknesses and their strengths, and they're completely okay with both, most of us are so afraid that we're not good enough that we're not useful enough, that what are we even doing here? How do they think that I'm worth being heard? All I'm going to do is add noise, right? Everything that's been said is enough. Like what, what could I possibly have to contribute? We doubt ourselves. We doubt that we're of value. And really most workplaces are not filled with perfection in relating to each other. Most workplaces have humans in them, (laughs) and humans (laughs) don't know how to be perfect humans to other humans. And so we have to push past that doubt personally, that we have something like you you do have something to contribute. It's like here in the state of Texas, a second grade teacher is the only one that knows what it's like to be in a classroom. And if she doesn't speak up and tell people what it's like, for little boys who can't sit still and for little girls who get trampled on because this size classroom is too big and this orientation and the way we have it laid out is not working. If she doesn't speak up, how is Texas legislature ever going to do anything useful? How are we you know, at the local administrative level going to do anything if she doesn't believe that she has something to say? So that perspective is crucial that we help people see that they have value, that their perspective has value. And look, we're even going to help you by saying, you go put this on your social network. We believe that you have something to contribute. We want to hear what you have to say, and we're going to support you in that figuring it out. Yeah. You described number one, a compelling, you know, case for, right. We, we can, the opportunity to, to speak your own voice is the opportunity for the rest of us to learn something that we just don't experience. As you said, that 
Now, I grew up in a world, and it's, it's still dominated, I would say, uh, where a company wants to have a polished, coordinated, you know, top to bottom way to present their story, right, in a controlled way, which uh, in any complicated bureaucracy is not something that happens in minutes, but it happens in weeks to, right, to make a statement that's carefully planned and reviewed by lawyers and all kinds of that. And that, that you know, that's the, the challenge I think companies, many are struggling with, which is, and, and there is, by the way, there's a need for consistency, right? What does CIS believe about this topic? Because people count on that. That's a that's an expectation that the world has. But it's it's also okay for the world to realize these are complicated issues, and there are many voices, and it's okay. We've been discussing a couple of technical thorny technical things that are well known and controversial. And uh, I, I offered the opinion of the day. You know, we we do, we do offer we do uh, want to honor our adopters by being clear in what we think our best opinion is, right? We have, we've made a declaration that we produce best practices, but I'm perfectly, like, I think it's healthy for us to be transparent about, and these are all the counter arguments. This is the challenge that we have. That allows others, you know, gives you credibility, but it also gives others to say, you know what, some of those factors, you they mean more to me than others. And I could make a reasonable decision, but I think that that's, I'll say the organizational version of uh, being vulnerable, right? Putting your thoughts on the line so that others can you know, decide what matters to them, right? What what parts do they empathize with? Tony, you're so right. That paradigm is so important. Um, thought leadership, we assume, well, what thought leadership must be is this groundbreaking news and information where you come with all the answers and everything that we must go do. No, it's not. It's like thought leadership should be at its best, starting a conversation, a willingness. Like you said something really, really, really insightful. And that was, we have to learn how to say the quiet part out loud. And no one here is under the illusion that any of this stuff is easy, clear cut, fully, you know, it's going to work for this company and this size and this organization. It's like, we don't have all the answers and everything is evolving so rapidly. So we have to just say, Hey, what are you seeing from where you sit? Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? It's a conversation. It's um, kind of like it's best case. It's like we're at all at a conference. We're just all hanging out in the lobby. What do you think? Oh, that was so cool. Weren't you inspired by this? And we're just sharing what's interesting to us without saying, I have the answers. That's not what thought leadership is. And that's not what anyone's looking for. And that doesn't invite conversation anyway. Like this should be building bridges. Like every time you see my thought leadership content or hear me speak, it should weave like invisible spider web strands, like from you to me, so that we have trust. It's about building trust. And that happens in relationship. That happens when I get to know you. I know where you're based. I know what you like. I know what you kind of do on the weekends. Like we don't have to open up every part of our life, but when you walk into Starbucks or you walk into coffee and you see someone, you know, your first thing is what have you learned at work today? Or, you know, what groundbreaking thing have you discovered? It's how's, how's life? How's your job? How's your family? We are multifaceted people. And if all I know about you is that you have all the answers, there's no relationship there. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's, you know, the, <clears throat> a, a lot of this, you know, we're in a different world than, than I grew up in. You can work at an institution for three or four decades. Me too. And you, yeah, you build those relationships often through proximity. Yeah. We, we see each other in the hall. We feel accountable because I'm going to run into you and I better, I've answered your question. But you also get this sense of, 
um, you know, what they're about, right? What they care about. And you get the sense of the emotion, the passion, the, the things that will, that will really uh, drive their interest. And so I think that that's hard to, you know, for, for my generation, a little less natural to think of we're doing that through different mechanisms than the ones I had, you know, sort of physical. And I think that, but it, but it is different. I, you know, I, I raised uh, three digital natives in my household. And uh, I remember having this, this moment of revelation where I realized my daughter has a hundred friends that she, neither she nor I have ever laid eyes on. This is, this is really weird. <laughs> and, but that's natural to them. They build networks of friends around whatever, pop music, topics of radio, uh, radio music, all these kinds of things. And, you know, it became a different way to interact with the world. And I think uh, this, this thought leadership, again, is thinking about this. One of the beauties of the information age is, right, is we're sort of, we have amplifiers everywhere where we can reach places, we can learn from places that would otherwise have been inaccessible to us. So I think that is really true. Let me come back to then to the, okay, to this generational thing. Uh, again, for, for some of our senior most people, right, this is not natural. And they, I think there's a line for them that they feel uncomfortable about. This sort of like, I'm bringing attention to myself. You opened with a statement like that, right? And that that's uncomfortable. That's not what we do. We're professionals. We project a certain you know, persona out to the world and we control that. And so any advice for the old dogs like me in this business who, who maybe didn't grow up in this technology, find themselves now managing a different kind of a workforce in a different sort of context? And how do they participate in a way that, that makes sense to them, that can work with their concerns about this or do they is it separating their personal life from their professional life or is it being active in a different way than they thought of before yeah absolutely so in this day and age we know that we are being defined like long before i meet you when i'm or let's say i'm just about to get to go and have uh, have a meeting with tony sager oh my goodness well what am i going to do to get to know Tony before I actually have met you. Well, I'm going to go online. I'm going to look and see what you have said. I'm going to look and see what others say about you. I'm going to look and see, you know, your company bio page online. I'm going to go to your LinkedIn profile. I'm trying to fill in these gaps. And some of like that push and that incentive to fill in the gaps before others do is that they're not going to do it right. They're going to make assumptions and go, wow, well, they've never written a post on LinkedIn. They must think that this isn't, you know, they just don't have a lot to say. I don't know. We make assumptions. They're all, they're probably never correct. And so we get to get ahead of that. We get to define what people think about us. We get to define what our expertise is. The goal of thought leadership, it's actually to have your ideas in the room before you walk in. People internally are watching to see what you have to say and how you're contributing. Um, some of the best employer retention programs and attracting new employees looks like we're going to mobilize senior teams to get on LinkedIn because they can, it's like they're interviewing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, showing people like we are the coolest organization out there. It is an incredibly high return on investment, but just know that the conversations are happening. You just may choose to not be there for it. Yep. So you're back to your fill that information gap before it gets filled it by really something is. else. It really is. Yeah. But like to be safe, you know, and to just say that the, the risk is smaller than we think it is. 
I mean, I know on the privacy side, that's a whole other animal we can't cover here. But what I can say is that most people are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or people are going to call them out for something. That is so much more rare than we think it is. And on a platform like LinkedIn, where I do talk about, I talk about LinkedIn a lot because that is the place where we struggle almost the most, right? I can put you on a stage, you'll be fine. I can put you in almost any other kind of public relations scenario, you'd be okay. But LinkedIn, we freeze and we kind of freak out a little where we just need to kind of reframe it and just know that LinkedIn will show people that post maybe a couple times over a couple days and they'll never see it again after that. You can delete anything you write. It's perfectly okay, but you'll figure it out as your feet are moving. And if you listen to the people that have been doing this work of thought leadership for a long time, we will tell you that the return on investment for for just the joy of networking and getting to know people, the joy of sharing ideas, the fun it is to actually see people go, wow, that was so helpful. Thank you for saying that. It is a blast. It is so much fun. I'm mid-40s. I did not grow up this way. (laughs) I remember the day I sent my first email and I was going, what is this technology? (laughs) Um, This has not been nature. And it, it, it isn't usually. But when all of a sudden you have personal freedom in a way you didn't experience before because the world has opened up to you. I have an audience now, Tony. It's fairly small still, all things considered, but like 8,000 people maybe on LinkedIn. That network I'm going to get to bring with me for the rest of my life. They're going to be the ones who help me launch this thing and do this thing and invite me here and let me go over to here. It's an asset that I can't possibly put a value behind. And all I did to get to where I am now, sitting here talking with you today, having gotten to do this incredible project with CIS. And it was because I went to LinkedIn and I put my big opinions out there. That's it. And I was me. And I learned as I went. And if I can do it, so can you. I didn't go to school for this. I went to school for economics. It's not for marketing. It's not for writing. I just figured it out as I went. Well, very good. And uh, yeah, I guess we're Pleased to have you as a member of the team. Let me ask you about a, a, a phrase that you use. Uh, I think you're the first I've heard uh, use it, service at scale, because that really struck me when you said it and the way you presented it. And uh, tell me a little of your thinking behind that and maybe in the CIS, CIS context, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So if I could get Tony Sager to take the genius in his brain and to put it out there, it's almost always going to be in the form of mentorship right? It's going to sound maybe 80% of it is mentorship. Maybe 20% of it is, guys, I'm seeing this and we got to figure out what the way is forward. It's like this cool intersection of just everything around your thought leadership. And that makes the journey shorter for the field, for those coming behind you, for those new to cybersecurity. Um, Our goal is to serve at scale. I firmly believe that with thought leadership. And it does accomplish every other objective you have too. But when you frame it first as service and as mentorship, it kind of reframes this challenging thing of like, what the heck is thought leadership? And so, but we need to have that responsibility of knowing like the people coming behind us, they're learning from somebody. And again, if our voice is absent, that's a bummer. It shouldn't have to be. So let's go and make the world a better place with everything that we've learned and everything we know and just take a few minutes in the drive-thru one day 
and throw an insight out there on LinkedIn because somewhere across the world and across even, you know, in your town, someone's going to read that and their day is going to be better and they're going to feel like, okay, I can move my shoulders again. This helped me enough to be able to have a, the chance to get back to work today stronger than I was before. Thank you, Julie. That's wonderful. Good wrap up there. <clears throat> Any last thought you care to leave with the audience? Thought leadership is not a total walk in the park at first, but it is truly the most valuable thing you can do. I say it for everyone listening, thought leadership is 10% of your time. It is 10% of your job. And once you get up into senior team level, it's like 20 to 30% of your job. But for you, it is your job and it will open doors for you that you will not believe. And it is more fun than you know. You just have to start. You'll figure it out. Again, as your feet are moving, don't wait for some perfectly laid out strategy. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next month. Just start today. Start small. Send out connection requests on LinkedIn. Try to articulate what you're thinking. Again, I say in the drive-through, you just need a few minutes. Your goal is not to be groundbreaking. Your goal is just to show up. And that's it. And Tony, it's been so fun to get to do with this work with you. And thank you for caring about this topic. Oh, I appreciate it. And thank you for your for your insights. I, I am going to guess you've inspired some of our listeners to take some action. So don't be surprised if you uh, hear from them on LinkedIn or some other means. <laughs> so, with, so with that, we'll wrap up this episode. A bit of a change of pace, but delightful from my perspective. Julie, thank you very much for joining us today. And with that, uh, well, you know, we'll wrap up another episode of uh, Cybersecurity Where You Are. To the listeners, thank you again. We appreciate your time and attention. Uh, subscribe to us in the usual ways, and we'll catch you at the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.